This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Louis Melmadrana. Dr. Melmadrana is an attending physician at Eastern Maine Medical Center in Bangor, Maine. He received his MD from Stanford University School of Medicine and his PhD in clinical psychology from Psychological Studies Institute, Palo Alto, prior to residencies in family medicine and psychiatry. Dr. Mel Madrana is a scholar of indigenous medicine and serves as the executive director of Coyote Institute, which seeks to enrich contemporary medicine and psychology with the wisdom of indigenous cultures. He has written many books, including Coyote Medicine, Coyote Healing, and Coyote Wisdom, a trilogy of books on what Native American culture has to offer the modern world. Lewis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, in your book, Coyote Medicine, which I really uh, enjoyed reading, uh, you really owned your identity as a healer and the idea that, that health care need not be confined to the physical realm. So uh, my first question to you is, uh, what is healing? The, I think the best definition I've heard is, is that it, it's to make whole again. And that would be the old English definition of the word, which I think came from holon. And um, I would say whole in every sense of the word. And that allows us to distinguish healing from curing. So someone can become whole again and not be cured, or they can be cured and not be whole again. And sometimes they can be both. Do you think uh, patients at times that you work with can have trouble understanding that distinction between being uh, cured and being healed? And, and how do you kind of uh, wrap that discussion into a clinical relationship? Well, so I think it comes up most often when people have severe illnesses that um, may not be curable. And granted, there are miracles, and I've seen miracles, which I would define as, as events that lie outside of the rational explanation of contemporary medicine, but um, they're not replicatable on demand. They can't be guaranteed. And so, so it often comes up in the context of a severe illness that we talk about how a person can become whole and can still die, that, that they can die in a state of wholeness even though they weren't cured. Can you, uh, can you introduce our, our listeners to kind of your uh, indigenous heritage and how you became interested in indigenous medicine? So um, my maternal, maternal lineage is Cherokee with some Greek intermixed. And my paternal lineage is Lakota with some Swedish intermixed. And I grew up in Southeastern Kentucky. My grandmother and great-grandmother were somewhat immersed in, in cultural practices. And I experienced cultural practices for 
um, the things that ailed me. Uh, in particular, I had asthma as a child and, and experienced, you know, cultural practices for that. And I actually didn't know that the mainstream didn't do what I now know to be cultural practices. I thought everyone did until I got to medical school. And it was only at medical school that I realized that I had a non-mainstream upbringing, that the world that I knew was not the world of most of my colleagues, most of my fellow students. And that was a bit of a shock. And in my book, Coyote Medicine, I, I tell about um, realizing that rather abruptly in a pharmacology lecture in which the, the professor who had discovered the metabolic syndrome announced to us that life was a relentless progression toward death, disease, and decay. And the physician's job was to slow the rate of decline. And I found that a bit shocking because it wasn't what my grandmother or my great-grandmother would have said. And so as soon as the lecture was over, I ran across campus to the Stanford Indian Center, burst through the door only to encounter Henrietta Blue Eyes at the desk. And I ran up to her desk and I said, Henrietta, I need an elder. And she said, what tribe? And I said, Cherokee. And she got out that archaic artifact known as a Rolodex and found two names for me. And it was with these people's help that I managed to maintain what I thought was a healthy perspective between the indigenous view and the mainstream view through medical school. And, and I've, I've never not had elders to spend time with. Um, it's always been the case that I've been connected with elders, traditional cultural knowledge keepers. And so, um, you know, I wouldn't know what it would be like not to have that. I imagine uh, indigenous medicine kind of encompasses uh, many distinct healing uh, traditions from, from different tribes, but can you discuss some of the common themes that are, are present throughout and, and common techniques or modalities that are used? I would say that the philosophy that um, we're an integrated whole of mind, body, spirit, and emotions within a context of relationships with other humans, non-humans, more than humans, um, in, in geological space is is common to most indigenous cultures. And um, the idea that illness results from, or that one cause of illness is imbalance and that a common way of working toward wellness is to restore balance and harmony. And um, so within that broader overview, you know, there's tremendous variation in local procedures and practices. 
but I, I would say that, that um, wherever one goes, people are always addressing all dimensions of a person without siloing those dimensions, without breaking them up the way contemporary medicine breaks things up into internal medicine and psychiatry and uh, religion and um, emotionality and sociology so that it, it's a more unified understanding of the human condition. I've heard you uh, say, uh, kind of tangent to those ideas that, that culture is medicine and more specifically that stories are medicine. Um, so can you discuss the healing power of stories? Indeed, and um, there's a wonderful writer, uh, Leslie Marmo Silco, who wrote a book called Ceremony. And she tells us that um, stories are all we have. Stories are what we have to protect us from sickness and death. And without the stories, we have nothing. And that they're not just entertainment, but they're um, wisdom and, and knowledge and guidance and direction. And Thomas King says something similar in his book, The Truth About Stories, as does Joanne Archibald in a book called a Story Medicine. So um, this is an interesting area where indigenous culture is, is meeting mainstream neuroscience. And um, one of the interesting areas, um, my wife listens to a podcast frequently by a neuroscientist at Stanford named Andrew Huberman. And his podcast is called Huberman Labs. And just this week, he was talking about how stories have physiological power. And he was describing a study that consisted of, of telling people stories of gratitude and looking at how it changed their physiology for the better. And so um, we evolved to do story, that the human brain is a story brain. And one of the most powerful networks of the brain is the story network which is also sometimes called the default mode network or sometimes called social brain because a general idea is that our big brains evolved so that we could handle more stories and have more relationships. So um, it's a linear relationship between how many close relationships you can have and the size of your brain. So chimpanzees can have around 25 close relationships, and we can have around 150. So, so our brains are designed to make up stories and to understand stories and to um, put stories into memory and to get stories out of memory. And telling a story is the best way to persuade someone to do something or to think something or to um, have a certain attitude. And, you know, the legal profession knows that very well. 
if you look at narrative studies in law, it's commonly said that it's not the truth that wins a trial, it's the best story. And um, so that, and advertising knows know that, advertisers, that in order to sell a product, you have to create a story for the person about why they have to have that product. Politicians know that. You know, you, you, one might not appreciate the story, but one can appreciate the craftsmanship that Donald Trump has in weaving the story that gets people to follow him. And, and he uses all the elements of persuasion in telling those stories that connect with his audience. So a story is powerful and we need good stories to counteract the negative stories. In a, in a practical sense, how do you feel like uh, you use stories with your patients? Well, I like to tell traditional stories to people. Um, at this time in my life, most of my clients uh, come from the Wabanaki Confederacy. And the Wabanaki consists of five tribes, um, the Penobscot, the Abeniki, the Passamaquoddy, the Maliseet, and the Mi'kmaq. And so I've, I've um, learned Wabanaki stories to tell my patients, clients, whatever we call them. And, um, but I also know a lot of Lakota and Cherokee stories that I tell. And um, I've been known to tell a few Russian stories to Russian clients. I try and match the story to the culture of the person with whom I'm interacting so that it, it touches on their roots, so that it speaks to the wisdom of their ancestors. Another uh, you know, thing you touched on a lot in coyote medicine was the experience of going through a, a sweat lodge. Can you talk about uh, you know, when and how those are used uh, in the context of indigenous medicine? So um, we're trying not to call it sweat lodge anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. And oh, that's okay, um, because it was it was a Jesuit label sweat lodge, and the the better translation is revitalization ceremony. So in Lakota, the word is anipi kaga. And kaga means ceremony. And anipi is the third person plural for the verb to breathe. So it literally means they breathe ceremony. And so what one is breathing is the vapors of the water uh, coming off the hot stones as steam. And this vapor revitalizes us. It enters into us and purifies us and removes toxins and burdens and allows us to be in a better state to interact with the spiritual dimension. So, um, so these kinds of ceremonies are done quite frequently throughout Indian country. Um, and when I was 
practicing in Saskatchewan, I, I could find one every day of the week if I wanted to go to one. Here in Maine, it's less common. It's I could probably find one once a week. Um, in places like South Dakota, it's more common. But it, it's, it's a basic um, opportunity to revitalize. And the idea is that in the dark and the heat, it, there's a comfortable meeting ground for the humans and the spirits. Com comfortable enough to both of them that, that meetings can take place and that, that sometimes healings can happen. And, and there's different kinds of lodges or anipikagas. There's family style where, you know, it's, it's fairly relaxed and um, people of all genders and ages participate. There's bear lodges, which are really quite intense and have to do with a major healing. There's um, healing lodges that are perhaps a little less intense than a bear lodge, but still quite uh, remarkable for the, the wish for healing. The Anipi ceremony is usually done before any other major ceremony. For example, um, there's um, before the sun dance, there's four Anipi ceremonies, one a day for purification. And then there's a, a, an Anipi, a briefer version of an Anipi every morning and every evening at, before and after the dance. And um, so most ceremonies are begun and sometimes ended with these cleansing, you might say, or revitalizing ceremonies, which are uh, amazingly frequent across North America. What about that experience kind of allows you to experience health, not only physiologically, but also emotionally and spiritually? So um, when, one, when one leaves the ceremony after the conclusion, one feels uh, lighter, uh, more, more vitality. Uh, sometimes uh, one has had a, a deeply spiritual connection and one feels uh, inspired or uh, uh, one has received information or guidance and direction. Uh, clearly one feels physically better less burdened, uh, lighter. It just feels great. And, uh, you know, I do it as often as I can. You, you wrote in uh, Coyote Medicine that you always, or, or that you wanted to be halfway between a, a physician and a, a priest. And you've also remarked that you didn't see much a difference between divinity school and, and medical school. Can you talk about the overlap between spirituality and medicine and why modern healthcare uh, has sort of neglected these connections? So when I got to medical school, I had a rude awakening about the difference between divinity school and medical school. And I, I was quite shocked, actually. And um, so spirituality has always been an important part of my life. And I think it's an important part of doctoring. 
And I, I know some conventional doctors for whom that's also true, you know, from a Christian or a Islamic persuasion or from a, a Jewish uh, tradition. And um, certainly in the North American indigenous world, it's, it's really important, the spiritual dimension. And uh, once upon a time, I did a study on what traditional elders thought was lacking from conventional medicine. And one of the most important factors was spirituality, that they just couldn't understand how you could practice medicine without spirituality in the way that the conventional doctors did. For, for patients who, who might um, be sort of un, uncertain about their spiritual life or, or spiritual things in general, how do you skillfully incorporate that into a clinical relationship where you're not, you know, by any means forcing anything on anyone, but also kind of opening them up to a new dimension of health that they might not have considered? I, I don't, I probably wouldn't um, bring up these matters if someone was completely close to them. I would probably talk in metaphors and I would still tell stories, but um, you know, with, with indigenous people who are spiritual, um, we often, you know, I'll often sing a song or drum with them or smudge, you know, um, before our work together and with someone who's not spiritual or who's um, Christian, I wouldn't do that. Um, if they're Christian, I might cautiously um, insert some Christian ideas that I, that about which I was confident. I, I can't say I'm I'm an expert on Christianity. I know a little bit. Um, so I think, I think, you know, one has to run with what the person brings you. You know, what we try and do is to enter into the story that we're given and to move it along in a healthier direction. And however we can do that is good. And if, if spirituality can enter into that, I think it's more powerful. But if it can't, then, then we still work metaphorically and um, within whatever paradigm the person is living. At, at what point um, did you kind of decide to, to start the, the Coyote Institute and, and how, um, you know, how are you, do you feel like you're trying to, uh, you know, like you said, influence, influ or, or like it says on your, um, some of your, your website, I believe, like influence contemporary medicine psychology. You know, I'd like to think that we are. Um, we started Coyote in 2009, if my memory serves me. And um, we wanted, we wanted a, a not-for-profit so that we could do things without worrying about who's paying for it and that we could um, get grants and, and, and accept donations and, and try and do good in the world. 
And I think we've affected the lives of many individuals and especially young physicians and medical students. I get uh, emails and occasionally snail mails from people thanking me for, for the work that we're doing and the teachings that we're um, producing. And um, are we changing the world? I don't know. We, we're certainly part of a larger conversation of decolonization and um, reclaiming indigenous knowledge and practices and offering it to the modern world. And one of our heroes is Albert Marshall, who's a, a Mi'kmaq elder from Eskasoni First Nation in Nova Scotia, Canada. And um, Albert believes that if we just keep talking, the world will change. And he introduced the idea of two-eyed seeing or eptuoptimunk in Mi'kmaq. And it's the idea that um, there's always more than one way to see things. And in this case, the indigenous vision is as valid as the mainstream vision. And so um, we've, you know, through Coyote Institute, we've done trainings on two-eyed seeing. Um, we have a conference coming up at the end of January at the University of Maine called um, Indigenous Approaches to Emotional Well-Being. And Albert is the keynote for that conference. And um, it's a three-day conference where um, students are coming for $25 for the whole thing. So it's, it's uh, clearly not a profit-making venture. And um, so, um, you know, we're out there. We're out there trying. And, and I think of Thomas Merton, who said, always do the right thing, even if you're sure that it's not going to work. And so in the spirit of Thomas Merton, we're out there trying. And maybe it'll work. Who knows? I can certainly say I, uh, your, your ideas and your work has touched me. So I thank you for like the things you've done and trying to advance uh, you know, this greater conversation on healing. Can you elaborate on uh, the, the, the idea you said of decolonization? And I imagine you want to, to spread your um, you know, indigenous medicine as much as you can to the mainstream, but at the same time, you, you want to preserve sort of the integrity of those practices as opposed to them sort of being, um, I guess, culturally appropriated uh, by people. So how do you, how do you, uh, you know, try and spread indigenous medicine while keeping like the, you know, the origin and the roots of the practice? So I would say there's a difference between indigenous philosophy and indigenous practices. And so what we're pushing is indigenous philosophy. And so that's the notion that um, we're all interconnected and interdependent, which is Natukalink in Mi'kmaq or Matakwiasin in Lakota. And we're, we're um, 
pushing the idea that health is balance and harmony, and that we have to address all aspects of a person within the context in which they find themselves, um, geologically, socially, politically, relationally, um, you know, with, within every aspect of, of their environment. And, <clears throat> and the notion that community is crucial to understanding health and well-being. And so those ideas can be implemented by anyone. And, and one can take those ideas and run with your own cultural practices, you know, to implement those ideas. So um, in uh, Lakota country, you know, one has ceremonies and, and, and you know, the, the UEP ceremony, which translates as they tie him up, which is a, a marvelous all-night ceremony done in the dark uh, indoors. And you have uh, Lowampi ceremonies, which is singing in the dark. Uh, you have Ambalachia, which is vision quests. You have uh, Sundance. You have the Anipi ceremony that we've talked about. You have the making of relatives, the Hunka ceremony. Uh, you have the making of women ceremony. Um, and you have the playing with the ball ceremony, some of the most common. Um, but there's other ceremonies. I mean, other people have other ceremonies. You know, in Cherokee country, there's the green corn dance. And the ceremonies more mirror the cycle of the harvest because the Cherokee were more agricultural than the Lakota. And so we're not proposing that anyone appropriate anyone else's ceremony. What we're saying is let's think about these ideas and what they mean for all people. You know, let's think about what it means to be interconnected. Let's think about what it means to be embedded in community. Let's think about what it means to be, um, to find wholeness simultaneously, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and relationally. And um, let's ask, how would we practice if we were doing that? And, and so when we talk about uh, decolonizing medicine, so let, let's look at the, the practices that come from settler colonial capitalism. So um, one is that um, the notion of maximizing profit on people's afflictions. And, you know, if we look at the United States, we spend more than double of any other country and we rake in the 50s in, in health outcome measures. However, we're the most profitable healthcare system in the world. So a lot of people are making a lot of money and we're not necessarily getting much healthier and it's costing everyone a lot. So, so decolonizing medicine would be to move away from the profit motivation. And I, I'm not arguing that people shouldn't have a good livelihood. I'm just saying that there are 
some parts of the system that have too good a livelihood at the expense of others. And we, we might look at this notion that everything can be solved with a pill. And so we want to, to, we want to move toward the slow medicine instead of the fast medicine. And again, I'm not against pills. You know, I think medication can be really helpful in the right circumstance. But what we're trying to work against is the idea that everything can be solved with a pill. And that if pill A gives you side effects, you take pill B to treat the side effects. And when pill B gives you side effects, you treat, take pill C to treat those side effects until you're a veritable walking drugstore. So um, in, in our context, we're trying to get people, even if, even if they take medication, to consider meditation, to consider you know, breathing exercises, to consider exercise, to consider eating better, to consider traditional cultural approaches, ceremony, uh, singing and drumming, uh, learning language as a way to appreciate the values and the virtues of the culture, um, participating in practices such as beading or basket making or making regalia. Um, you know, that we're saying, look, everything that you do can be healing and can reduce your dependence upon pills. And um, so, so I think it's decolonizing to say that healthcare is simultaneously spiritual, emotional, relational, and um, that I say physical, emotional, spiritual, relational, all of those things, instead of just um, taking pills. And also to say that time is healing and people need the time with their practitioner when they need it and not necessarily in 15 minute chunks or 10 minute chunks in some places. The worst I ever saw was six minute appointments. And um, it's actually been shown in research that if you give people the time they need when they need it, they actually consume less time over the course of a year. But um, the US medicine structure is set up to maximize profit, which means giving people the least amount of time and moving them through quickly, rapid throughput. And so decolonizing medicine means giving people the time they need when they need it and um, not fixing them to a, a schedule that's of your convenience or for um, your profit. And, um, you know, these are some radical ideas that aren't going to happen overnight, but we're trying to implement them in Wabanaki country. Uh, in the services that we provide. 
for the Wabanaki people. And um, we'll see. We'll see how much we can do, you know, to decolonize healthcare. Yeah, I mean, I think you touched on um, a lot of great points there about the problems of American healthcare and, right, you know, essentially polypharmacy and the profit and um, just trying to, you know, have as much throughput as possible. In, in your eyes, what are, what would indigenous philosophy say about, you know, or what, what would indigenous wisdom say about how to sort of break some of that inertia that, that it's so hard to like break through for uh, a lot of people who would like to see a change in our healthcare system? I, I would, my sense is that the only way it will change is if um, outside of, is, you know, if the funding is per capita, is capitated, and we don't make more money for keeping people sick, that we make more money for keeping them well. I think then things would change. I think we would start to look at, um, well, so how, how can we work this to make people the healthiest they can be? And, and the caveat to that is that um, if, if one overburdens the system, by having too many people to take care of, then it'll break down anyway. And, and you see that in the National Health Service in England, that theoretically, um, it could function somewhat like a capitated system, but in actuality, it's so general practitioners are so overburdened that they, you know, and they feel the need to see everyone and, and they just can't see everyone and give them the time that people need. And, um, and there's also a kind of, you know, in the UK, I, I'm not sure if people in the US know this, but most general practices are private businesses and they build the National Health Service for what they provide. So it's, it's not really a capitated system. Um, so it's, it's, it's difficult to know how to proceed. And I think Bernie Sanders had a good idea when he thought that um, localities should get a purse of money for their healthcare. And, and they should decide on the local level how to spend it. And Great. I think that would be more democratic instead of kind of a one size fits all, just sort of have, it, it's sort of more of a local thing where people can have their needs met by their smaller communities. Indeed, that, that's been Bernie's proposal and, and I can't see why it wouldn't work. On your website, it also, it, I, I read uh, a quote, I think by you, uh, beyond any technique, relationships are what heal. Um, so how can a doctor kind of help patient cultivate relationships in their personal life and build community that ultimately lead to better health outcomes? One of the ways, one of the initial ways is for the doctor to recognize that the doctor-patient relationship is medicine. That when the doctor gives time to the patient, the doctor is giving something that's as or more powerful than a prescription. 
And so just seeing people and spending time with them is therapeutic. And in my teaching of residents and medical students, I've really tried to, to bring that home. And it's, it's always been my experience is that if someone's not getting better, then see them more often. If someone, you know, is getting worse, spend more time with them. And if one does that enough, that sometimes it seems miraculous. Sometimes sudden change occurs in an unpredictable way. Um, I, re I remember uh, a woman I was seeing whom everyone told me was hopeless. And I just kept seeing her once or twice a week. And, um, you know, she'd been hospitalized more than 300 times psychiatrically. And um, so maybe she wasn't getting any better, but she stopped being hospitalized. And one day, about two years after I had begun seeing her, she walked into my office and she said, I've decided to be well. And I was like, what, really, how? And she said, well, I'm gonna wean myself off all medication. I'm gonna start exercising, I'm gonna start eating well, and I'm gonna go out and do things. And she proceeded to do that. And by year three, she was incredibly normal. I mean, one wouldn't have guessed that she'd been in this seriously mentally ill camp ever. And so um, I don't know what I did, but uh, I just kept seeing her, you know, as often as she would come. And uh, one of my colleagues asked her, like, he said, what did, what did he do that helped you so much? And she said, well, he never stopped holding a vision that I could be well. And I actually didn't even know I was doing that, but somehow it was implicit in just seeing her frequently and, and giving her the time and telling her stories and um, just being present. And, and I think that if doctors knew that, they would honor the doctor-patient relationship more. And we would probably also do more group medicine, like group medical visits and where people help each other. Because it's been shown that people get more out of peers than they do out of doctors. And we, we a, group of, a group and I in Saskatchewan did a study of this, and we found that group visits for diabetes with elders was much more effective than doctors and much more effective than business as usual because people actually knew what they needed to do to help their diabetes. And it, it didn't really matter for the doctors to keep wagging their fingers at them and telling them to do it. What mattered was when they were with their peers and they heard stories from people about, you know, not taking care of themselves and what happened and how some people had turned around their diabetes. And that was the most effective thing that we could find. So recognizing that 
um, it's not always all about doctors or, or professionals or experts. Sometimes it's connecting people with their peers and um, facilitating people helping each other. We also did a study in Saskatchewan when I was there where we, we were doing um, talking circles in the clinic waiting room after hours. And, um, you know, where people just talked around the circle. And, and we found that the talking circle, participating in at least four visits to the talking circle was more effective than going to the general practitioner for anxiety and depression. So, you know, finding ways to facilitate people to connect with each other. In, in Indian country, there's a marvelous program called Wellbriety that was created by Don Cohos of, of the White Bison Society in Colorado. And it's a way of bringing people together in a culturally syntonic way to support their sobriety. So there's lots of ways of, of connecting people. And I think we have to do more connecting people in medicine than we do. My last question for you, um, kind of might tie a number of things we've talked about uh, today. Um, and that relates to, you know, we, we've talked about colonization and, and things like that. How do you, what do you think are the first steps uh, from here where we're at uh, for bringing healing between, you know, native tribes and, and the United States as it exists today? I, I think um, giving, back the, giving back land is the most fundamentally profound first step. That honoring treaties, honoring tribal land claims, because healing is in and of the land and without the land, it's hard to find healing. And so, um, you know, we're all starting to acknowledge now that, that we sit on stolen land. And even the University of Maine um, has a, a statement now that says that it, it acknowledges it sits on the unceded territory of the Penobscot Nation. And it says a lot more than that. But, but I think more than lip service has to happen, more than acknowledgement, there has to actually be some return of land that was stolen. And I'm, I'm curious to see what happens in Eastern Oklahoma with the Supreme Court decision that most of Eastern Oklahoma belongs to the Cherokee. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. But, um, you know, land claims are, are happening all over North America. So time will tell. Time for uh, a lightning round, a series of fast-paced questions that tell us uh, more about you. Um, so you've practiced uh, medicine in a number of different places throughout the U.S. What was your favorite place to practice? I guess... I think my favorite place was Saskatchewan. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you have uh, received? My grandmother always said, do rat. 
and I suppose that's still true. What is uh, your favorite story? I don't know that I have a favorite story, but I, I love the uh, I love the Lakota creation story and the, the story of the of the creating the four directions, um, which James Walker wrote down in the 1890s. And I think that's a great story. What was the uh, hardest part about writing a book? Finding the time to do it. <laughs> um, and lastly, why should we have hope uh, for our healthcare system? Well, regardless of what happens, it's healthier for the body to have hope than to have despair. All right, Dr. Lewis Melmadrona, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you, thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Esculapius. Till next time, I'm your host, John Neary. Be well.